My name is John. I am an alcoholic. I can fairly tell I'm at a closed men's meeting because as soon as he started talking about sex, everything got quiet instantly. I introduced myself as an alcoholic, and I have to tell you that anything I know about the disease and my life today is all the direct result of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous of a loving God that was so gracious and so kind. The God that I did not know, did not want to know, when he sent somebody to me, because I couldn't find you. All of my life I had been looking for something, and I knew whatever it was that I had was not it, but I felt an emptiness inside of me. And it was said earlier in the panel this evening that by one of the gentlemen, he said that alcohol was not his problem. Alcohol was never my problem. It was my wife's problem, it was my children's problem, but it wasn't mine. That's the thing that kept me alive. That's the thing that I did to run and hide behind. I was maladjusted to life, and I knew full well in all the years that I lived that the problem was mine. I was all-powerful, all-screw-up, and everything was my fault. That was one of those individuals. And when I say this, that I'm sober by the grace of the loving God of Alcoholics Anonymous, is on the, 6th, on the 11th of March on 1976, I was sitting in a saloon. I knew nothing about alcoholism. No one had ever accused me of being an alcoholic. I was sitting there doing some bourbon whiskey. Jack Daniels was my brand. And I was drinking on my fourth drink, and it was somewhere around 10.30 or 11 o'clock at night on the 11th of March, 76, and a young man came to me and sat down beside me. In the process of sitting down beside me, I knew him because I had had my last drunk with him, and I had bailed his little ass out of jail because I was always hanging around drunks who couldn't control their drinking, so he was one of those, and I wrote him off because if you can't carry your drink like a man, for God's sake, don't call on me. And I didn't like drinking with anybody anyway, and I don't think anybody really liked to drink with me. Uh, but he sat down beside me in order to coke, which is disgusting. <laughs> what in God's name would anybody do in a saloon ordering a Coca-Cola? And what he did is he, he started talking to me, and I was on my fourth drink. And then he said these words. He said, I have found a place, and you will like the people. He had just come from a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's called the Gorilla Meeting, and there's a number of you here that know what the Gorilla Meeting was. He had sat in that meeting, and he was so inspired and so enthused and so excited about the power of the program that he found he, with his five days of sobriety, came into where he should have never gone alone, as he should have never done, according to the rules of Alcoholics Anonymous, sat down beside me, ordered a Coca-Cola, and said, I found a place, and you will like the people. And I wanted to throw his ass out, but he was far too big for me to do that. And who in the hell likes people anyway? That's why I drink, for Christ's sake. The most outrageous piece of crap I've ever heard in my life. So he said to this, he said, will you go to a meeting with me? And I'll be damned if my mouth didn't say yes. And I was screwed. Because you see, I think it's true with almost every alcoholic. We are men of our word. And then we break it. But in this particular case... <laughs> we all love to believe we are ironbred, character-wise, and I'm a man of my word. <laughs> Go on, rape and pillage. Uh, but in this particular case, the reason I said it was my fourth drink I was drinking is that I'm not sure I finished it, because when my mouth said yes, the compulsion to drink was lifted from me, and I have not had a drink from that second to this. Any mind-altering drug or chemical... I have not been mine, and that's why I said I was sober for seven days, six months, and 26 years.
the days is the important ones because if you take care of today, you can get the years behind it. But it's always today is the single most important thing in my life. That's the way I call it. Okay. I went to my first meeting. This guy, I love going to, I'm a lover of Alcoholics Anonymous, but that did not occur. I was stuck. The son of a bitch had his car. I had to ride with him. He took me to a meeting. And the first guy I met, I'm furious I'm stuck with this damn thing. I should have drove with my own car and I could have hauled away and not have to listen to this crap. And the first guy walked up to me, he's still sober now, he walked up to me and said, so you got a drinking problem? What a hellish question to ask somebody. And I said, well, doesn't everyone? And the son of a bitch said, no. I wanted to cold conk him, but I was, didn't want to walk home. After the knee, and then they called on me. They had the presence of mind to recognize they had a future statement in Alcoholics Anonymous, and they called upon me. <laughs> and this is my contribution to sobriety on my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm here to see what the creeps do on Tuesday night. And they laughed at me, which infuriated me, and I too would have walked again. Then some miserable turd said I didn't have enough guts to stay sober for 90 days. And the rage and the anger that was in me boiled up. And I vowed at that time, I'll see you drunk before I drink. Many, many of you came up from San Jose I know who I'm speaking of. His name is John Hill. Still sober. 33 years, I think, right now. Bless his heart. He made me mad enough to come back at you. Not because I wanted sobriety, because I didn't know what the hell sobriety was. They did say something at that meeting, and I think it's vital, because this is a program, there is a solution we're talking about. But in order to find the solution to any problem, you've got to know the problem. And I did not know the problem. And that's what our problem is in Alcoholics Anonymous. The people who go out do not truly understand the problem. Was there, was discussed in the meeting before, when the long-timers were talking about A true understanding, it's my absolute irrevocable belief, a true understanding of the problem compels you to move through the 12 steps of recovery. You have no choice. Our book clearly states that. Clearly states that, and I'll perhaps talk about that in a minute, but what, this is how I fell in love with you, and it was nothing I did. He got me so mad when my friend called me of the following, I was on a Tuesday night, I was without a drink then, I got so, my sobriety date is the 12th of March, and this was the 16th of March, I went to my first meeting, and I still had not taken a drink. I have no idea why, but that day I refused to take a drink because I didn't want to go to an AA meeting smelling of alcohol because you might think I were drinking. All right. My friend called me the following Friday and he said, you want to go to a meeting? And I said, I don't want to go where those other bastards are. And he said, we'll go to a different place because I knew nothing about you. I had no idea there were meetings all over town. So I went to there and it's amazing on the other side of town that people were so much nicer. They treated me much more friendly and I thought it was kind of cool. Then my friend called me the following Tuesday and said, you want to go to a meeting. I said, we're going to go back to that first place. He said, yes. I said, well, i got to check and see if they're still sober. I went there, and it's amazing how those people changed in a week. It's amazing. They were gracious. They were kind. They were loving. And they even smiled at me. And my friend asked me to go to a meeting the following Friday, and I said I was looking forward to it. I went to that meeting, and I fell in love. My soul recognized you, and I knew that I was home. I still did not know what the problem was. But the night of my first meeting, they said these words, and I will say them again, and I have no idea what you're going to hear, but I sure know what I heard that night. They said, I will never have to drink again as long as I live if I don't want to. 
Now, what you hear is what you hear. What I heard is they told me that I drank for the 30 years I drank because I had to. Good God. I've had a thousand, a hundred thousand different reasons for drinking. It's Tuesday. It's Friday. It's hot. It's cold. I'm hungry. I'm not hungry. I could go on and on. Add infinitum. I don't like that sucker. I'll have a drink for it. And on and on and on. The stuff that we do. I, the concept that if they were true in that statement, everything I knew about me was wrong. If I drank for 30 years because I had to. And so there was a curiosity there and I fell in love with you and I had to stay here. Because you see, you offered me what in my heart, my soul recognized you, my soul seemed to have recognized the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that moment to this, I want so desperately to have what it is that is available in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm one of those that I'm blessed. I am the richest man in the world because of the blessings First of all, the knowledge that God loved me so much that he went out and sent somebody to me who should have never gone there. And I heard the word. My heart was touched. I came to you. I don't know that I would ever have found you. No young man never went on another 12-step call. As a matter of fact, once I asked him, I said, Why, Bob, how come you never go on any 12-step calls? Minute, smart-ass looked at me. He said, John, I brought you in the first time. Could you imagine might I might bring in the second time? So, so dreadfully uncool. In falling in love with you, my life changed, and I told, as a matter of fact, that was on a Friday night, and I called my friend on Saturday and said, do you want to go to a meeting? And he didn't want to. And I've been going to meetings ever since. I wanted this thing, and I walked up to a man I was going to have to be my sponsor, and he announced, he announced this. He said that he wasn't going to sponsor anybody who had less than 90 days of sobriety because everybody got under 90 days drank. And so I said, oh, Christ, I'm going to have to wait 90 days to ask the sucker to be a sponsor. But you see, I was one of those. I couldn't talk. That's amazing. I couldn't talk. I could. I listened to you, but I couldn't talk in AA meetings. And I didn't know the rules. And I said, I went home to my wife and I said, honey, I think I like this thing. My wife, <laughs> yeah, the ice queen. She's the one that occupied the ice palace called the bedroom. Okay, I got the couch on a good night. I had been married for 15 and a half years for her, with her, and our relationship started gloriously and deteriorated into an absolute endurance contest. That's all it was on a good day of endurance contest. My children, I have eight. By the way, I need to tell you something up front. I said it earlier. You're going to find out how great I am. And it's not that I brag, you understand? But I have eight children. 23 grandchildren and 21 great-grandchildren. My oldest great-grandson is 18, and pretty damn soon I'm going to be a great-great-grandson. And on that basis, I'm probably the greatest person you've ever met. <laughs> only by the grace of God. I wonder if it's only by God's grace and solely by God's grace. I was 48 years old when I walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, or was escorted in, I would like to say. Escorted in by God's angels, the band by Bob Plessy, who brought me to the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. Okay. In my family, my last name is Carney. That's what I've been a parent, and I've, my anonymity was broken without my permission in the meeting over here just a minute ago. Okay. My last name is Carney, and according to the, the records of the family tree of the Carney family, no male Carney has lived past the age of 55. I am, tomorrow, I'm going to be 75. Now, that's pretty goddamn good. 
And all you have to do is come here, fall in love, do the things that are suggested for you, and the whole new world opens up to you. I have no clue how long I'm going to live, but today is enough, because I get to do it today, because this is the day. The guy I say that one of the principles that I have, God lives in the moment and God lives in the truth. I am in the moment and I, I am now in the moment and I am now seeking the truth because I'm a truth seeker. I look and find truth and then I find truth. I've got a spiritual principle I can live by that. And one of the things I did when I first got sober, since I couldn't get a sponsor, I got the big book out because I thought there was some sort of a formula by which you have to prove to the sponsor that you're willing to go to any length. And so I started reading the books to find out what the hell do I have to do? What's any length? I've got to have a test coming up here. I couldn't ask anybody because that would be too damn simple and I'm too smart for you anyway. So I started reading and the first thing I knew, first thing in the book that got me, he said, I'm going to join Alcoholics Anonymous. I went home and told my wife, I'm going to join Alcoholics Anonymous. And she said, oh, what does that mean? I said, well, first of all, I am going to share. She said, what do you mean by that? I said, Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope. I read elsewhere in the book that it, that a much more important demonstration of these principles lies at home and at, uh, in respective affairs outside of AA. So I'm not going to have to tell you anything about what I know. I go to an amateur, my wife, who hasn't got a clue what the hell I'm talking about, and I can make sense. And I can make all the mistakes I went through, she's never going to know. You would. So I went to her and I said, <laughs> I said to her, I am going to share. And I told her why. And she said, what does that mean? And I said, it's simple. I'm going to speak on a topic that is really important to me. I'm going to be as honest and open as I possibly can be. And your job is sit, listen, don't interrupt, and try to understand. And when I'm done, you can speak on my topic. Well, a topic of your choice. And I will sit and listen, try to understand, and not interrupt. And the only thing wrong with that is that she knew how to share, and I didn't. And most of her sharing would start like, Remember when? <laughs> and the book screwed me. The big book about it because there's some other things in there that got to me. You see, I read real a lot. I still read a lot. Uh, and the book just called my name. It still calls my name. It says that we fault finding should be avoided like the plague. And what are you going to do? Because it says I have to avoid fault finding like the plague. And it says that I avoid retaliation. Good God. She has just hurt me badly. And I got to avoid retaliation that I ran to an AA meeting. And I started whining and sniveling. You know what she said. Okay. I started praying immediately. Because you see, what I did in true fact wanted this thing. I still did not know. The, the disease. I read it over and over and over again. I lied on my drunk along. There's somebody out here that's probably the same way. I li when people ask me questions, I would lie because I didn't know. Now, I should have known. It's inconceivable standing here today, and for most of you out there, it's almost inconceivable to consider the fact that you could drink as long as you drank, do the disgusting, filthy, loathsome things that you did, go to rotten places, do something that constantly drowns out the very worst of you, and you don't know you did it. Self-deception. By every form of self-deception, in and out of the room, I will try to prove myself exception to the rule. Because that's the greatest defect, of, in my opinion, of an alcoholic. My problem is not alcohol. My problem is learning how to live life 
on spiritual terms which avoids the necessity of me ever having to take up a drink fix the pill. I'm just a drunk, that's all I know. And so when I embarked upon this program, my prayers started. And I found in and then somebody else, uh, my heart just turned when somebody was at the podium talking about Chuck, my mentor, a man that gave me everything, <laughs> Chuck Chamberlain, in case you know him. He did a Palomesa retreat in 1975, and I got his tapes in 76, uh, and I have been mesmerized by his teachings ever since. And he told me a lot of things that I practice today, and if anybody recognizes some of his terms, please understand that Chuck gave me permission that I can use anything as long as I gave him credit the first two times, and after that it's mine. Okay. <laughs> Morning, noon, and night, I was listening to Chuck Chamberlain's tapes, and this is just a disgusting story that has no business being told here, but it's embarrassing to me, and I do not like to embarrass myself, but I was four months sober, and I heard Chuck for the very first time, and he was like a god to me, you know, standing up straight, falling, he had a white suit off, and you'd think he was ascending. Uh, he was talking so well, and I couldn't breathe for the entire hour and a half. Chuck could never do it in an hour. He always took about an hour and a half. And my wife grabbed me, and she said, don't you want to go up and meet him? And I said, oh, no, not me. I'm mere mortal, and that's God. And she walked in. My wife was a hussy. She had constantly embarrassed me in public. Uh, she walked up to Chuck and put her arms around him. Son of a... And, and that's my wife doing that to that strange man. And he put his arm around her. He was talking to somebody, and then he turned around and he kissed her. He kissed her. And, and then my wife looked at him. He said, Chuck, you don't know me, but I've been sleeping with you for the last four and a half months. <laughs> and that old fart said pretty good, wasn't it? In the process of choosing his own conception of God, I started praying. I got a book and I started reading. I didn't know I was going to pray. I put wrote down in my book, I become willing to become willing to become willing to learn how to pray. And that's what I wrote, and that's what I did, and then soon the words that I was reading were no longer acceptable to me, and I started to pray my own prayers, and I got permission to do that, because the book says that the wording on our third step, it gives you wide open to place. It says that the wording is quite optional as long as you express your idea of voicing it without reservation. You see, I believe in prayer today, because that's how God reveals himself to me. And I believe a prayer is not a prayer unless you're obedient to the prayer. And I'm very careful about the prayers that I offer because I am going to pray and I am going to live as if I have prayed. I believe in that. Prayers are truth and I will and have the power because detested in me by the loving God, I can and will create the fellowship I enjoy by virtue of being surrounded by the loving members of Alcoholics Anonymous. I had a spiritual awakening of a educational variety that occurred. Now, I've done all this thing. I'm even sponsoring people who know I haven't done crap, okay, because I told them I don't. First guy asked me to sponsor, this is how well-known I was. First guy I sponsored, I said, I don't, haven't worked these steps yet. I'm trying to understand the first step. He said, but you got a car, and I need a ride to a meeting. <laughs> Not the only one. That's cool. I think that's grand because you get in service even when you don't know what the hell you're doing. Okay, and I was in this saloon. I was in San Diego, and I was I was in San Diego to, at a tournament, uh, uh, state tournament bowling. I was a bowler at that time, and uh, I got in a place I should not have been. And this is when the disease made it manifest itself. So all of the information that I had, which was here, 
settle from here to here. This is a story. I was in a saloon where I should not have been, and we were waiting for dinner. And the other people were drinking, and I was not. And then descendedly, the gates of hell seemed to have opened up. And now I knew, I knew, I could, I don't know how I knew, I knew. Suddenly God revealed to me that moment of clarity. Or how about this, when those grand times, if you've ever been married, to lay in your bed with your wife beside you, pretending to be asleep, and she's sobbing her heart out, and you know, God damn well it's your fault, and you haven't got a clue what you did to do it. That was one of those great moments of life. Why? How I could open the door and see my children and see them run when they saw me. And I couldn't understand that because I adored my children. Why were they afraid of me? Why had they left home? They had all gone away the time I got here. I had an eight-year-old son when I got sober. Okay, he, I had my last chance to be a decent father. And I screwed it up. Somewhere around two or three o'clock, two or three or four years old, he started running. And now I get sober. He's always in the other room. I knew it then. I, that night I knew that. And then I boldly, I'm screaming to the only words that could come out of my mouth are, God! That's all I needed. That was the prayer. The wording is awful as long as you express it. Voicing it without reservation. I couldn't even think of the serenity prayer. I just screamed God. I went back to what my wife and I said, out of all the bravado, I'll tell you how to fight this goddamn thing. I said, do you want them to drink? And she said, yes, I'd like a martini. And I, like all the horses ass I was, I said, I'll get you one. I walked to the bar. I ordered a martini. And the guy poured a martini, poured a perfect martini. It's more in the glass than the glass will hold. The bubble on top? Now, if you ever drank any martinis, you know you damn well don't touch that sucker. You're going to go down and suck it out. These folks say, you don't want to spill any. You don't want to spill any. And I was standing at the bar and looking at that martini. My hand was resting on the bar table, just like this, firmly. I was horrified. And while I'm screaming God again, my head started to bend down to suck it up. And I didn't want to drink it. My body did. I didn't. And then my hand shook. Oh, and I was relieved. And I picked the martini up and I quickly reached behind me and pulled out a handkerchief to wipe my hand off because I've done that before. And you, that's how you do a martini when it spills on you. And I screamed to the God of my understanding, if I live through this without hurting anybody, I have the information to work the 12 steps of recovery. See, I've been a fighter all of my life. I thought I've been fighting ever since I was free. I had my first drink occurred once a night in, in, somewhere in the middle of March 1946 in El Paso, Texas, when I just run, won the Golden Glove Champions and the Championship, and a whole bunch of people wanted to buy me bar, booze, and I'd never had a drink before, and I'm 18 years old. And I got that night all of the information theoretically I needed to know about the disease of alcoholism, but I had 30 years to drink left. Because I got drunk, I made an ass of myself, they told me what a wonderful time I had, and I believed them. And that's the drunk story. A year later, I'm 19, I'm in Skid Row in Washington, D.C. That's a long ways to go. Three, four, five years later, I'm in the streets of Los Angeles. And somebody attempted to do several people, Los Angeles and Fifth. And somebody insulted me and insulted my wife and a couple of guys, and I put them both in the hospital, and one of them died. 
I'm 21. <laughs> I still got a lot of time to drink. 28 years left to drink. My, my lovely bride, my first wife, committed suicide at the age of 29. I come to in the nut house, the psychiatric wing of the Los Angeles General Hospital, unstrapped down and in a straitjacket. And I hear them tell the story about this crazy, crazy son of a bitch who went absolutely insane. And it took six firemen, four policemen, and two civilians to get me in a chokehold so I could pass out. They could stuff me in the straitjacket. And when they got me in a straitjacket, I was still too violent, and they strapped me down to a board. And I'm laying, in a, laying there in the psychiatric wing, and the doctor's looking down at me, and I hear them talking about me, and he sees that I'm awake, and he looked at me, and he said these things. He said, if I let you go, because I'm bleeding in a lot of different places, a lot of people got hurt that day, and I'm bleeding in a lot of places, and he said, we got to sew you up. If I let you go, you won't hurt me, will you? And I honestly, God couldn't answer him, because I didn't know. I got 18 years left to drink. Eighteen years left to drink, and I didn't know. You know, drunk a lot of stories. I had the idea that I wasn't the guy that had to lie when I got here. I took a drink, a drink in a little town called Rivera. It's now Pico Rivera in Southern California. <laughs> I came to and watched, looking down the barrel of the 38, by a big, big policeman who gave me the impression he really wanted to shoot it. I go to jail for armed robbery. And it's a wonderful place when you're all decked up in a suit and tie and you're in a jail and watch. This is long before Miranda. <laughs> and you're the only white one there. Uh, and you're in for armed robbery and somebody apparently got shot up and they didn't know whether you're going to live or die and you don't know whether you did it or not. And you have to wait till the lineup occurs and nobody identifies you, and you're the only white man in the lineup. <laughs> that's, a, that's obscene, you know, you didn't get a fair shot. Somebody in a gabardine suit, and I had a gabardine suit on that day. Okay. Drunk stories. It took me places I didn't want to go, made me do things I didn't want to do. Now, this is an all men's group, and normally I, I prefer to tell this story when there are women present. You know, and I, when I tell you a story, you will understand that. I took it there, somebody was talking, I came to mind, somebody was talking here at the podium about Fresno, which I happen to think is the asshole of creation. <laughs> I bottomed out in Fresno. Nine years before I got sober, I'm in Fresno, and I've lost everything again. I know that I'm a failure in every department of life. I know that there's no hope for me, and it's just going to get the same, the same, the same forever. So I took a drink in Fresno. If you lived there, who wouldn't? I came to in Chico. That's how bad Fresno is. You run to Chico. I came to in a crazy little motel that sucked. $5 a night. Didn't have a shower curtain. So you couldn't probably get the shower. But the story is that I was woke up in this bed and I'm all alone. That's a good thing. Because I'm married. I've remarried. And I don't have any clothes on. Now that's suspicious because you see I always wear my jammies. And I didn't have any clothes on. I didn't even have any pajamas. But the real thing that got me is that I looked at my body and I've got purple stripes all over it. They're an inch and a half long 
and about a quarter inch wide, and they're all over me. They're in places I can't reach, and I'll tell you, they were in places nobody else should have reached. Now, that sounds like a wonderful story. The only thing I can tell you is I went into the shower and the bastards washed off. Now, I'm so grateful for that because that's going to be a tough one to explain to your wife when you come home with purple stripes. Now, the reason I tell that story is because it's in this kind of area, the valley, whatever the hell you call it, is that somewhere along the line I'm going to pitch this story in hopes that somebody in the audience will know how those purple stripes come. And I sure as hell don't want to talk to anybody today. That's why women should be in the audience. God, I want to see a woman that comes up and say, God, I do that for you. <laughs> How can you do things like that? And I could go on and on. And we all got our own stories. They're all stupid. They make no sense. You went places you didn't want to go. You did things you didn't want to do. You violated your own trust. You broke your word. You did every damn thing that conceivable be that is loathsome and objectionable to you. And you had a damn good reason for it. And that's the story. I got here and I started doing the things that you asked me to do and I looked at the first step of recovery and I found out this. That in a line in the book it says really simply that God lost the power of choice and drink. Now don't tell me that you choose not to drink today because the book says you're going to drink unless you do something else. That's what my book says. You've lost the power of choice and drink and so you cannot do not longer have the power of choice and drink. I worked, some guy came to me and asked me a sponsor a long time ago, this is how the misunderstandings I believe that can occur in Alcoholics Anonymous that causes, uh, allows some people to justify going out and drink. Because we have a disease of the mind. Alcohol is not the problem. Now we're in the mental phases of the thing. You put the plug in a judge, you will never have an alcoholic problem, but the mind says you will. And it's going to cause you, it has one function. The mind has one function and one function only, and that is to get you to a point of mental incapacitation so you will believe the lie, and the lie is that one more won't hurt. Whatever it is, I, it will make me feel better. And it might for a second, and then you're going to be on a rolling hill again, and you will go to that same place of pitiful, pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization, and you will come back and you will tell us, it doesn't work. It gets worse, never better. So I lost the power of choice and drink, and I sponsored this guy, and, and I got to the fourth step. I thought he had more time than I a lot. He'd been around a long time. And I said, we're going to do a fourth step, and he said, what kind do you like? And I said, what do you mean? He said, I've done 17 fourth step. And I looked at that and I said, for God's sake, go home, write, and tell me why, what caused you to drink. He came back with one sentence. They told me I had a choice. He believed it. This peculiar mental twist that precedes the next drink, he chose to drink that day. The choice is already made. It says in a book that for reasons that obscure, the alcoholic has lost the power of choice and drink. If you understand that, you're condemned to, and once again the line says, we have passed beyond human aid. You either believe the big book or you don't. You're either going to follow the big book's instructions or you won't. The half measures, once again, screw you. Half measures avail you nothing. You're going to do it or you're not going to do it. Now, Dr. Bob says that in his last talk, I love this one because it's my story. That when we get in these things and we work these 12 steps, we all get the same thing in direct proportion to our enthusiasm, stick to and zeal. It says on page 25, almost no one likes the self-searching, the leveling of the pride, the confession of our shortcomings, which the process requires for its successful consummation. You're going to have to do it. Wine, snivel, piss, or moan, or put a smile on your face, go ahead and do it, but you're going to do it if you get to stay here. 
At least that's what I was taught. Now, you may be the exception to the rule. I'm not talking to you. Okay. And, and the disease of the mind wants to tell me and wants to tell you, I'm different. You don't understand. I don't have to do this. I've got other things that are far more important. Chamberlain taught me, unless that sobriety is the single most important thing in your life, you are not going to get it. And unless it remains the single most important thing in your life, you are not going to keep it. Now, I'm going to keep it today. I know damn well I am. Because I'm on fire today because of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and after this is over, i got other things to do in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And i got appointments tomorrow morning, so i goddamn well better go to sleep tonight without any drinks, stick to pill. Because I am dedicated and I'm obedient to the prayer that I offered, and I offered myself to the Father of my understanding, and he gave me directions of what to do. Step one, and it says in our book that we have, but when we get here, we have only two alternatives. And actually, I think we really only have one. We have two alternatives. One is to go to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could. That was me in Fresno, going on to the bitter end, a failure in every department of life, blotting out the consciousness of my intolerable situation. I had drank, obviously because I had to. I couldn't stand me. I couldn't stand the world. I was a failure. My kids hated me. My wife hated me. And I was couldn't make any money. My kids were going starving. or not starving. I always put food on the table, but God damn it, it wasn't good food. It was just enough to get by in life. And that's no longer acceptable to me. It was never acceptable. That's what I was doing for nine months. It says we had but two alternatives, however. If you are an alcoholic and you're not in recovery, you get to go to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of your intolerable situation as best you could. There is only choice that you have is or accept spiritual help. There is no spiritual side to this program. The only hope we have in recovery is the spiritual, quote, side of the program. Sure, it's a suggested program of alcoholics. It's a suggested program of action. You could play that game any way you want to. Your mind is going to say, it's only suggested, I don't have to do it. Your disease of the mind is going to tell you that. Your disease of the mind say, well, I don't have to go to 16 meetings a day. I'll go to two or one. I don't have to pay attention to that guy's fool or sponsor of mine. I don't have to pay attention to him. Because I don't like it. Get another sponsor. I see what I'm saying. The disease of mind will work on you. Because if you truly, if I believe this with all my heart and soul, if you know you're condemned to die, if you know you're condemned, you know you're condemned to go insane. You know that you're going to go to prison. And God damn it, I have sponsored. There's two of them on death row and three of them, 50 to life who are exception to the rule. How many people, the old time, long time that you know, how many people have we, if you've been here for any length of time, how many people have we seen die going to the bitter end? So it's a serious goddamn deal, and I believe it in all my heart and soul. I want to see nobody die in ignorance. I just, that's the way I feel about recovery. I want no one, man, no man or woman to die, or child die in ignorance. I contrary a kid that's 15 years, he was 15 years old when he came in the door, and I looked at him and I said, you've got three good gods. Mommy, Daddy, and the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he stayed sober for 18 years. Damn it, he had to drink again because he moved out of town. You know, good old David, bless his heart. Oh, that's sad. Now, I don't know if he's ever going to come back. He talks to me every once in a while. It's miserable where he's at. He hates it, but he can't stop. Can't stop. So, if you understand the first step, truly understand the step, you have no choice. The choice is made for you. You're going to make the second choice, the second step. And the reason I say that, I can say that, you can argue with me, but in the book it says, 
these things, it says right before the ABCs, it said, the description of the alcoholic, the chapter to the agnostic, and our adventures before, and that's to make clear three pertinent ideas. If there are three ideas that follow are not perfectly clear, you go back and read the description of the alcoholic, the chapter to the agnostic, and we can talk about our adventures before that. Because they have to be clear. And why is that? After A, that we are alcoholics and cannot manage our own life, B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism, and C, that God couldn't would if he was taught. Okay, the line after that, being convinced of this, we are step three. That's the information you need. You take one, you've got to take two, or you're going to die. Step one is the most loathsome, unbelievably because it says you're going to die that way. Now, can you take that and when you know there's a solution over here, you're forced to, willingly or unwillingly, or you will die. Now, if you choose, that's your choice. But that's what's going to happen. Step three. And when I got to my third step, you see, by the time I got here, I had, God had revealed himself to me because it says when you draw close to him, he will reveal himself to you. Him. And I had a miracle. I had another miracle, just like my moment up there in the, in the bar down in San Diego. I had a huge awareness, okay, and that God loved me. And I, I took in uh, my third step. I took my third step with my wife, my daughter, and my son, and a witness, because the kid who brought me to my first meeting was leaving. He didn't like us, and I wanted to inspire him to see a, a third step going. So I went there to the Santa Cruz Mountains, and I did a third step. I turned my will and my life over the care of God as I understood it. With my wife and I knelt down in a beautiful glance, the sun of the beautiful rays of God was streaming down through this little clearing that we were in. And I turned my will and my life over to the care of my God. My wife turned her will and life over to the care of her God. My daughter, turned, who was 17 at the time, turned her will and life over to the care of God. As she understood it. My little son, who was eight years old, pulled on his mommy hand and said, Mommy, will you do it for me? And Peggy turned his life over to the care of God. His will was his business. Now, what I'll tell you, the only reason I'm telling you that is because my son was born with a learning disability of severe nature. We caught it early and he was in treatment. Okay, he was in a special schooling. Two weeks after our third step, the teacher called Peggy and said, I need to talk about Daniel because something's happened. She goes down there and she says, we no longer need him in this class because he's changed from some past and he no longer has a disability. We take him to the doctor. The doctor said, we don't know what this is, but it appears that there has been a spontaneous remission and we no longer need medication. Wow, what a coincidence. Isn't it amazing when you do the right thing, you do simple things. Now, what happened there, I came in the doors. I was one of these. I make money, I lose it. I make money, I lose it. I make money. I got in the doors when I was making money just to put food on the table. I overshot my mug, okay? <laughs> and I lost it almost immediately. Stone ass broke, saving soul. I'm going up and down the state of California for Christ's sake, finding drunks to fix. There wasn't enough in San Jose. Please understand this. So I had to go find them. I was really, really nuts. Almost as bad as I am now. Okay. The reason I tell you the money story is that the doctor said that it's a spontaneous remission. We don't know if it'll ever come back or not. But right now he doesn't have it. And I was stone broke. It came back with a vengeance three years later. By then, I have started the company. The results were rather phenomenal. And I could put him into a special education schooling, the equivalent of Stanford University. And it gave him the best start he could possibly get. What a wonderful coincidence that is. So I knew that God loved me. I knew that God loved my family. And I knew that anybody that was willing to turn their will and their life over the care of God entered into a covenant. I call it a covenant. You can call it a contract, or you can call it a prayer. I don't care. I entered into a covenant because I found out what God will do for me, and I found out what I'm supposed to do for God. 
You see, I have a statement that will appall some of you in here, okay, but I believe it to be true. My God trusts me. My God admires me because I'm obedient. I fell to my knees. This is what I do and this is why I do it. I fell to my knees after that third step and I said these words. I didn't know I was praying. I really didn't. I said, why me? I don't know if you've ever asked that question. Why me? Why me? Why have you given so much to somebody like me? Why? <laughs> why you've given me? A very evil, rotten bastard like I have been. Why have you given me so much? My wife is tolerating me. I'm in my bedroom. My children are calling me and talking to me. My life feels good. I, I, why? Why? I don't deserve any of this. And of course, I didn't deserve any of it. It's a gift. But I heard the voice. And the voice was not in my head, ladies and gentlemen. It was not in my head. It was in the room. It was loud. And it said these words. Give it back. And I waited. I couldn't sleep that night. I asked my wife in the morning because she knew a hell of a lot more about this stuff than I did. She was not yet in Alamo. Uh, and she said, you better do it. So I go down to central office and say, I'm here. I'm four months sober. And I'm going to save all the drunks in the world. Give me a 12-step call. And they said, no, go home. Because <laughs> you don't have enough time. And the phone rang and I grabbed it. And they let me talk. And I hammer their little butts every day. Two or three times a day I'd go down there. I'd call them. Give me a 12-step call. They finally got to the point where they were so disgusted with me, they tried to get rid of me. At least that's the way I looked at it. It was one day a lady called me and said, John, we have a drunk that nobody will take. I said, I'll take it. <laughs> but he's got a gun and he wants to shoot somebody. <laughs> so so I, got, I said, I'm on the way. And I'm almost there and I suddenly realized, Carney. You're in over your head. <laughs> and so I went to the God of my understanding and the covenant that he and I have entered into, and he said that I can go to the most sordid place on earth with, these, with this attitude, and my heavenly Father will never let me down. That's what he said. I believed it. And I went there, and we unloaded his weapon. I took him to a hospital I didn't know existed. I got four months of sobriety. I did everything that was right. And as a matter of fact, they said, does he have any insurance? I don't know, but you don't have any choice. That's what I told the hospital. And they believed me. He was in the hospital for three three days before they found out he did have some insurance. I don't know if they'd have come and got me. I don't know. But that's what I'm saying. God will constantly do for you what you cannot do for yourself. He's still sober. He's still sober. Okay. Because I remember the kid that had five days of sobriety coming to me and telling me about you. And you, I found a place where you were like the people. So I did a four step. I did it the way my sponsor told me to do it. And I wrote it. And I remember it vividly because I had an injury to my hand. As a result of my fourth step, okay. should have had surgery at that time. I didn't have the money. Okay, never got around to it. It's just sore. Okay, what happened is I wrote the inventory and defined the exact nature of my wrongs. And, and as I read it, when I first of all I wrote a page and it was crap because I read it and I thought oh, it was disgusting. I threw it away. I went back to praying to the God of my understanding. Please reveal to me that which I need to know. And He did. When I finished that fourth step and I read it, because this time I knew it was from the well, I wasn't even writing the damn thing. I read it and I said, oh my God! And I slammed my fist on the table like that. I was in a garage in the table smoking in there. It was two or three o'clock in the morning and I said, no more! I don't have to live that way anymore. I have had the exact nature of my wrongs and I don't have to live that way anymore. I went to my sponsor and waited until the door office was open. I didn't go to sleep. Jack came, finally came in 
He said, what do you want? I said, I'm here to do the fourth step. He says, I'm busy. And I said, I'm not. And every hour, he'd go sit down in his chair and he'd do his business. And then he'd say, look up and say, John, you still here? I said, yes, sir. He said, I, what are you doing? I said, I'm waiting to do my fifth step. And he says, I'm busy. And I said, I'm not. Five hours later, he said, oh, shit, let's go. And there, the inconsiderate dude took me to a restaurant. He sent me by the front door, right across from the cashier. Sure went in on, okay. <laughs> I pointed at a, a member of Alcoholics Anonymous in San Jose. And I'm telling him my horrific story. You know, oh God, the exact nature of my wrongs and all the dirty, dastardly things that I've done. And I'm concerned about the people walking by. And then I got irritated. Here I am peeling my guts out. No son of a bitch wants to listen to me. They just went by as if I wasn't even talking. I was very disappointed. But he, he said these words to me. He said, John, he said, good work. That's all I needed. You did a good job. I needed the affirmation. I had it right as far as I was capable of doing. And, I, and then he told me, go home and do exactly what the book says. Because I've been doing exactly what the book says from that moment and preceding it until this moment as best I can. And I'm getting better. And I will get better. Chamberlain has a story that I love it. Infinite father, infinite child, infinite journey. I've got just as far to go as I've come. I've come a long way. I've got a long way to go. Wow, it's the journey, not the goal. This is the exciting. This is the action-adventure story. Hmm, something special. So I went home and I carefully reviewed the first five proposals, setting aside an hour. I don't know how long how it took. My book says an hour. Okay, and when I was ready, I offered up my prayer. Now, my prayer is just this simple. is that I knew there was no value, real or perceived. Now, I, no value, real or perceived, on anything I wrote. That means there was nothing that I wrote that I wanted to keep. At that moment, at that second, there was nothing. I was without any reservation. Once again, our third step prayer says, voicing, you offer your prayer up, voicing it without reservation. So I did my seven, sixth and seventh step. What had happened is an act of creation. Through the process of the first five steps, I was entirely ready. It's created. I didn't know what I know. I've been willing all of my life. I think all of us have been willing all of our life to not do the stuff we do and have be fixed. But I was never ready. I had the tools of readiness. And on our sixth step, and then it talks about humility on step seven. Once again, an act of creation. First of all, humility. A true understanding of self. I knew for the first time, this is what I did. This is not who I am. I am not a rotten, filthy son of a bitch. I am just a man who did rotten, filthy son of a bitch and things. I, if I was what I did, I would never be able to change. I would be condemned to be that person forever. But I'm not that person. I am a child of a loving creator that was given to me through the process of working these 12 steps. So I went to my father and I said, here, what I found. This is kind of what my prayer was. Look what I found. Oh, God, I don't want it. I need help. And I know you will help me. So you tell me. You tell me when I'm screwing up and I'm going to stop. What a contract that is. What a covenant. And I've been stopping all along. And I was very few yet outside of this. That is, my defects of character, you're not going to see very many of them. Unless you just don't like me personally. And I'm talking about defects of character. My shortcomings, you will see when they appear that God is doing for me what I cannot do for myself. If I were to reflect it, what is perfection? Okay. When I got in the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, I can tell you that I would have stopped doing anything in the first year of sobriety. Now, I'm still so far from perfection as you can possibly be. Chamberlain says perfection comes from removal of not addiction. So, take away my difficulty. Cooperate with God by understanding. 
So I went and made a list of my eight steps, and it was phenomenal when I got into my ninth step. I was entirely, remember that I'm I'm roaring through these twelve steps because I had no choice. I didn't have to sit down and wait. Boom, boom, just exactly the way the book is written. Boom, 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 boom. I wrote my eight steps. I immediately, as soon as I had it down, all hell broke loose and people coming into my life, because that was my experience. I would have had to hang up the telephone, refuse to get in the car, not call on anybody or answer the tell. I could go on and on with the things that I had. I would have had to hibernate to avoid these people coming to my face. And I stand there and I'm, wow, good God, I had a nephew that ran away and, and I'm supposed to go down to court to keep the suckers from going to prison. <laughs> and often didn't make an appointment to the judge and the judge looked at me and he said, you have custody of your child. I didn't want the custody of your child. But God said, I get the men's this way. I'm a custody of the child. His father stood right there and, uh, and I got custody of my nephew. Little bastard. He's still got a custody of him. But he's 40, I think. <laughs> Some people never leave. Never leave. Never leave. But I, when I, when I tell this story about the ninth step because it's a beautiful story. And I see no reason why I am any different than anyone here. And I'll lay you on that there are a large number of you here to identify your own story parallel to mine. Okay, I'm saying this primarily for the newcomers. There should be no fear in recovery. It's searching in fearless inventory. Because on the other side, there is a sacrifice. And one of the dictionary definitions of sacrifice is giving up something of real value to something believed to be of greater value. And that's what requires that's what this is all about. I was willing to give it all up. Hell, surrender is just another word for having nothing else to lose. I lost it all. I had no value. I didn't want anything back. The book says that if you get it, if the husband and wife could get back together, it must be on a new basis because the old basis didn't work. My wife gave me a money clip. I got money in it now. And it, it says, the money clip says, all things are new. I adopted Chamberlain's philosophy. Chamberlain's philosophy. He woke up with a new woman every day. Yeah. Went to bed with a new woman every night. Yeah, that's cool. And if I couldn't see a new woman, I had moved. I was failing to grow spiritually. And I did the same thing with my children. I, did. I was all finished with my eight step and I stand here and I tell my wife, well, I'm finished with my ninth step. She is not yet in the program, Valentine, because I'm still in my fourth month of sobriety. And she said, oh, you are? She said, yes. She said, well, I've got a couple names for you. <laughs> and she said, first of all, David C. Now, I hadn't heard of David for seven or eight years before I got sober. Now, David wasn't on my list. And he could have been. But thank God the book is infallible. It says more will be revealed to you, even if your wife tells you. Okay. I didn't leave it off. By now, I'm communicating with my wife because all hell broke loose when we started to share with each other. Sharing. You had to listen to it, no matter how painful, and understand. I could go on with this, but I don't have the time. But it's fabulous. My wife and I, and our people in this room that could attest to it, had the most fabulous, unbelievable, loving relationship until the day she died. Okay, two years ago. See, we were Mr. and Mrs. Sobriety. See, five months into my sobriety, she said, this is the lady that I tried to kill me repeatedly. She did. Another story. She looked at me and she said, You got what I want. And she went to the Fellowship of Alanon, and quite frankly, Alanon will never be the same. <laughs> Most remarkable lady. She said, John, what about David C? And I said, Oh my God, I forgot him. 
And I knew that that's okay because more has been revealed to me. Now, David, I'll tell you about David. David injured my family in such a fashion that one day I loaded up a 38 to went to kill the son of a bitch. Now, I don't know whether I pulled the trigger or not. And I'm not really a badass that I know of. But certainly not today. But I went to kill that son of a bitch. Well, certainly just to, if not kill. I do not know. That's, that's what the gun was loaded for. And I went there and he wasn't there. And I'm so grateful for that. All right. I talked to him on the telephone shortly after that, and this is what I told him. I said, look, you son of a bitch. You look over your shoulder for the rest of your life. If I, you don't see me first, you're dead. And I, he wasn't on my list. And we were at a, the same bowling alley that, that morning when my wife said she had something on her list. And it's a bowling alley that's only 15 minutes away from where I live. And I went home. And the phone's ringing when I, get, when I get into my house, and it's my daughter, my oldest daughter, who lived at that time in Nebraska. She's calling me. Can you believe this? I'm only four months over. She's calling me. I just turned five months, I think. She wants to talk to her daddy. God. And I talked to her for a moment. I said, honey, by the way, do you ever know what happened to David Steve? And she said, yes, daddy, I do. Why? Because she knew, <laughs> she knew it was not safe for David to be in my sight. And she said, well, honey, I owe him the ninth step, just like I did with you. And she said, daddy, oh, I'm so grateful. He's standing right beside me. Oh, God will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. These killers are rotten slob. He can't come in my house. <laughs> well, he came in, and I truly found him sobriety as a rotten slob. And I told you, this is rehashing a little bit the panel that was here and did such an incredibly good job in talking about alcoholics phenomenon and the wisdom that they gave us from the years that they've been sober. It's absolutely incredible. My wife had never had a sick day of her in her entire life. Came down with cancer. In a utero, in some form of cancer. That she had a surgery, a huge, massive surgery, in order to stop it because it had gone through the lymph nodes and spread into her chest and her lungs. And she took chemotherapy, which was adversive. It crippled her. It virtually fried her inside. She was in magnificent pain. A healthy, wonderful woman. And uh, and I had the great joy of standing beside her, giving her medicine, cleaning her wounds, inserting all sorts of obscene things into her body. She lost control of her bowels, and so I did a lot of mopping and the like. This is the same guy. This is the same guy that went insane when his first wife died and had to run away. We already decided she spoke a great deal. We both spoke a great deal. She and the Fellowship of Al-Anon, me and AA, and many times together, both in Al-Anon and in AA, when they wanted an Al-Anon speaker. We were a very devoted couple. We decided that we would go to Wyoming because she knew essentially the time has come. She's now on oxygen. She had just finished speaking in Los Angeles. We went to Wyoming, and the reason we went there was we had a couple of great-grandchildren we had never met. And we drove there. I bought a van, and I modified the van, which is out in front, so she would be comfortable. And one night... She's been talking for three years. She's been talking about going through this with dignity and grace. She said that 
she's going to be an example, and this is my hero. She will be an example of going through this with dignity and grace, or an example of God's miraculous healing. Well, she knew what her preference was, but it didn't go that way. Anyway, we were in Wyoming, we saw the great-grandchildren we had not seen, and she got dreadfully sick one night, and I had to call 911. We were in a little town called Pinedale, Wyoming. And they had to rush her to the hospital in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Okay. We got in there, and they were serious, and they found out that much to their... The, the doctor had assured her that the, the cancer was moving very, very, very slowly, slowly, and she wasn't concerned about it. What it unknowingly had spread to her liver, they found out in the hospital, and they said she'll never get out of the hospital alive. And then they said she's going to go any minute. We were in intensive care. I had the whole room, the whole intensive care ward was filled with my children, my grandchildren, and some of my great grandkids were in that place. And they said that she's going to die any minute. She's got maybe five or ten more minutes to live. We were on the telephone talking to my children in Southern California, in California, and they all wanted to come out. And there was only two tickets that they could get to fly out that night. And there are two of her first children. And the lady I married had two children when I married her, and a son that was a medical miracle that we had after seven years after we got married. There were two tickets. One of her children was in Wyoming, and the two in California. Obviously, the rest of the that's the sign for the two to fly out. So, excuse me, but it's an emotional thing, because I'm talking about what was the greatest, greatest and most painful time of my entire life, and all the stuff I've done. Because the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and a loving God, or as I understand God, allowed me to pick up my lady and talk to her and breathe for her. The whole hospital was listening to me. That's what I'm told. Breathe for her. Because she would not, and with agreement, no artificial, nothing. Breathe for her for five hours. The lady was only supposed to live for another five or ten minutes. The two children arrived. They all said goodbye. And I stopped holding her. We held hands and she passed away. Now, I'll tell you why I tell that story. Because, like I said, it's one of that three years, three, almost four years, was one of magnificent experience to be wanted, needed, and loved, and to be able to demonstrate that. My first wife died because not knowing how much I loved her. This did not happen. And the finish of this story is very simple. How can a man like me, how can a man like me, become a man like me? How can a man like you, if you're in recovery, become a man like you? Through the power of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and a loving God that is more than willing to give us all the assistance we can possibly have. So see to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you in countless others. And I want to thank you very much for your listening and being not throwing anything at me. Have a good day.